Um, we're in week three of a series looking at the incredible book of the Song of Songs. It's, um, it's got all sorts of fairly intimate stuff in there that um, I, I'm not going to mention breasts or bums today, you'd be pleased to know. Um, we'll save that for another week. But the, one of the things I sense that God's wanting to do through this season He's wanting us to know that he's not inviting us to an orphanage as orphans, but he's inviting us into an intimate place of real deep relationship with him. You know, orphans live differently to brides. If you, somebody is uh, you're just sure that they're, orphaned-like in, the, in their hearts, then it changes the way they behave. And if I can be honest with you, sometimes I think in churches we, we can, through some of the practices that we do, we can affirm orphan-like behavior because orphans always feel like they've got to earn things. And you know, sometimes in church, people who get involved in everything and get busy, we applaud them and say, wow, that's so good. But sometimes there's an orphan spirit underneath that. People are striving to be accepted and loved. And I sense that God is wanting this year to really nail it with us, that we're not orphans, that we're lovers. And, and I hope that the journey of this morning will build on the last few weeks that we've looked at this very, very special book of Song of Songs. But before we start today, I want to tell you a love story. You like love stories? Yeah. This is a love story of a 16-year-old lad that bumped into, met the most enigmatic woman that he had ever encountered. She was radiant. She just was effervescent with life. She glowed with joy. And he was absolutely taken back with the warmth of her smile, by her radiating sense of fun, her authentic love for other people and Jesus. He watched her. She was kind, open-hearted. Her, her eyes, they sparkled. He noticed that there was no pretense with her. She was just real. There was an authentic overflow of love and compassion. And within days, this young guy knew that he wanted to spend the rest of his life with this woman. Would you like to see a picture of those two people? If you've ever wondered what I look like with hair, it's right there in front of you. This is my take that phase. And uh, that picture of Nita is actually a photograph. That's, I've taken a picture on my phone from a, a, a um, paperweight that I had made just after I met her with that picture that I took. And all of those years ago, we met and just fell in love. And, you know, we've had some bumpy times. Marriage is not easy. We've had some fallouts. I mentioned the other week, I was amazed that of all I said the other week, people come and said, oh, thank you so much for saying you and Nita had argued. <laughs> Just like everything else had been forgotten other than, oh, it's okay, we feel affirmed now, we can argue as well. <laughs> you know, marriage has been, it's, it's had um, its challenges. As any, anything that's good in life has challenges. But... I'm so grateful. The next picture is the day we got married. 
Yes, I had highlights. <laughs> Let that be a lesson to you guys. Mess with your hair too much. When you're younger, this is what happens. But I'm so grateful to God that he brought us together. And when we got, when we got married, do I need to change mic? What does that mean? Okay, we'll try it a little bit longer. The, the minister stood at the front of the church when Nita and I were at the front. And I'd watched with just amazement as she walked into the back of the church. And I'd seen her for the first time in her wedding dress. And she just radiated. It's the most beautiful, beautiful moment. And she walked to the front. And the minister who was leading the service among the words he said, he said these words. The scriptures teach us that marriage is a gift of God in creation. It's a means of his grace. A holy mystery in which a man and a woman become one flesh. It's God's purpose that as husband and wife, as they give themselves to each other in love throughout their lives that they shall be united in that love as Christ is united with his church. Look at that joining together, that united, that one flesh. You see, God has a love story. Jesus is the desirous groom whose eyes sparkle when he sees you. And he is awaiting his beautiful, spotless bride to walk towards him. You are his bride. And when he sees you, his heart melts. You are so lovely. You are so amazing. And I know it feels a bit awkward looking into the eyes of some of you guys and saying, you're so beautiful. But God, the lover of your soul, is bowled over with you. We often in church say, how much do you love God? What's your love like for him? I think a greater question is understanding his love and desire for you. Because it changes us. You're so lovely, so stunning, so glorious. He loves you. And over the past few weeks, we've been looking at the song of songs. It's called the song of songs because it's the song of all songs. It's a love story. It can be read in three different ways. And each of the ways you read it is correct. You can read it as a love song written between probably King Solomon and his bride-to-be. And, that, and as we read it in that way, we can learn lessons and extract wisdom for how we conduct relationships in this earth. The second way of reading this book is an understanding that it's God's story with the Israelites. That it shows the ups and downs, the joys, but through it all, it shows that they are the apple of his eye and he loves them. And we can learn important lessons about who God is with his people. And the third way that we can read it is that it's a love song between Christ and his bride, the church. 
And what a song of love this is. And this song of love is being sung over you as we've just heard Noah capture some of that. It's being sung over you right now. It's obvious that you're loved. Though your sin is like scarlet, God has made you who know him to be as white as snow. Somebody had a picture in the last service before I said those words of snow falling. It was gentle, it was beautiful, but it's the righteousness of the Lord that flows over his people. We are, with the bride and the bridegroom, we are coming together in union. One flesh union. Now, in my marriage with Nita, I've been so deeply impacted by our relationship that I honestly couldn't stand here today and tell you what would be different if I'd not married her. It feels like we've blended, we've inculcated, we've, we're so mixed together now that it's difficult to separate and understanding our lives have blended. And that, of course, is God's design that we become one together. But let me ask you the question before we look at some more verses from Song of Songs. How it does oneness with Christ look? And there are four ways, I believe, that we can perceive our relationship with the Lord. Let me put an illustration on the screen. The first one I'm going to call the inspired. And this is that Jesus is like our hero and we see all that he does and it inspires us, but we are in the center of our lives and it means that the emphasis is on us trying harder to be like him. But it's all about us to try harder. If you live like that, I want you to know you're missing out on something beautiful the Lord has for you. But the second way of living is the takeover approach. And that is that we completely disappear and any transformation and regeneration within our life is all about God. We do nothing and he does everything. And if he doesn't do it, then it doesn't happen. It's closer to the truth, but it's not really true. The third one that you can't see the word is the sharing approach. And that is that we have a 50-50 split with God. He handles some things, we handle others, and together we live this life of making it work. It's quite a pragmatic way of living our Christianity. But the fourth way, I'm going to call this the union way, the blended, the one flesh, is that we're so mixed up. It's like if somebody puts some squash and then adds some water and it gets mixed up, you can't suddenly say, well, take the water out and take the squash out. We are so together. And that's how our life is like with Christ. That together, we're blended, we're united. And the reality is when we first saw Christ on that day, that wonderful day we sang about last week, that incredible happy day, we were ugly, we were vulnerable, we were betraggled, we were battered, we were beaten because we were descendants of Adam. But though we were unlovely, he saw us, he loved us, and he desired us. And today, it's obvious that you're loved. It's obvious. And what evidence do you need? 
The Son of God gave himself upon a cross and gave his life to win you. I impressed Nita with some meals and some dates and some nights out. And I won her heart. And Jesus has done so by giving himself on the cross. It's obvious that you are loved. But it's obvious that you're desired. This wasn't a contractual obligation. Dane Ortland describes, he's an author, he describes this union to be like that of an experience on a trampoline. Of course, you've all been on a trampoline this morning before you've come to church. I know it's part of your daily rhythms. But on the trampoline, you know that the harder you bounce down, the higher you jump up. And he says the bounce down is like our repentance. It's like those moments where we recognize our need of a Savior, our ugliness and our sin, and we repent. And the deeper we repent, the higher we go by faith. This union with Christ, though our sins be like scarlet, though our heart be corrupt, though our lives be frail, though our hearts be weakened by sin, our rise is glorious. Our forgiveness is miraculous. Our healing is spectacular. He's liberated us from the gravitational pull of sin. And now we are free in him. You and I, we are united in Christ. He says, I will be your God or your lover. And you will be my people. The marriage covenant of two becoming one is not a compromise of two independent people that try to balance out their responsibilities and take an equal share in their relationship. It's joined together so that they're no longer two, but one. Good marriages are not functional alone. They're not a convenience to eradicate loneliness. They are not the equation one plus one equals two. It is one times one equals one. In my most selfish moments, yes, I have them. There have been occasions where there have been inner battles where maybe in my marriage I've had selfishness driving some of my wants and my desires. Maybe I begin to interpret things in the relationship as being unfair. And as a result, desire is replaced with demands. Longing is replaced with licentiousness. Intimacy is replaced with formality. If your marriage is involving those things, then I want to invite you to come back to a place of desire. And with that, I lead into two, Song of Songs, chapter 2, verses 8. It says this, and I'll try not to slip into the West Country accent that I automatically slipped into when I went, ah, I hear my lover is coming. <laughs> I'm not going to do that this time. Ah. I'm not going to do it. No. Listen, I know you West Country people are romantic, but I'm going to try and be a little poetic here. Because it's poetry, it's song. Ah, I hear my lover coming. 
It's leaping over the mountains. It's bounding over the hills. My lover is a swift gazelle or like a young stag. Look, there he is. He's behind the wall. He's looking through the window. He's peering into the room. My lover said to me, rise up. Rise up, my darling. Come away with me, my fair one. Look, the winter is past. And the rains are over and they're gone. The flowers are springing up. The season of singing birds has come. And the cooing of the turtle doves fills the air. The fig trees are forming young fruit and the fragrant grapevines are blossoming. Rise up. Rise up, my darling. Come away with me, my fair one. He comes running to you. Bounding. Does that sound like the actions of a reluctant person? Does that sound like the actions of someone who is covenanted because of duty towards you? That sounds like the actions of somebody who is desperately desirous of you. He comes bounding. He chases after you. He longs for you. And he says, rise up. Come on now. Come out of your disbelief. Leave your past behind. The winter's gone. Listen, the shame is no more. It's gone. It's gone. Come on now. It's new identity time. Stop letting your past form you. Allow my love, allow the words of my love that says, rise up. Allow those words to transform who gets up out of that bed. The winter is gone. A new season is here. Rise up, you are no longer. You remember last week, we looked at that term, though I am dark. And it's not a racism issue. It's that it was an evidence of her injustice and the unfairness and the vulnerability of her life working out in the field. And look what he says to her here. He says, but now you are fair and embraced, no longer vulnerable, no longer held by the injustices of your past. And the eyes of one who looks over a billion orchids and roses zones in on you. And he says, you're the one that I want. You're the one that I want. His eyes, they desire you. And as you walk down the aisle towards him, They're filled with such passion and longing. But I want to take you to a moment now that feels like this party is about to come to a crashing moment. It's almost that moment when someone comes and bursts the balloon or the music stops and the atmosphere changes. Because in chapter 3, let's look at the first few verses. One night... As I lay in bed, I yearned for my lover. I yearned for him, but he did not come. 
So I said to myself, I will get up and roam the city, searching in all its streets and squares. I will search for the one I love. So I searched everywhere, but did not find him. Now in our almost 30 years of marriage, I've never liked being away without Nita. I've traveled a lot in my life. I spent 10 years traveling around the country, different places every week. Sometimes Nita was able to travel, but we had young kids and often she wasn't. And I missed her. I used to do my utmost to get to be away as short a time as possible and get home as quick as possible. I've sometimes traveled to other nations and often been there without Nita. And I've tried to make those visits as short as possible. Sometimes people say, hey, if you stay behind a couple of days, we'll show you some of the sights. And I'm like, oh, I just want to get home. I'm sure it's wonderful, but I miss her. Absence is powerful, isn't it? Some here are living with the power of absence in your life. Some of you have lost loved ones, husbands, wives. And you feel that desperate sense of absence. You know that your husband or wife is rejoicing in glory, but you miss them. Absence or grief is not something that diminishes over time. I think sometimes people say time is a healer, but I've noticed over the years grief doesn't get smaller. We get bigger around it. Absence is powerful. And so I try to be as present as I could. Try to be as present as I can. But there's a way of physically being present and emotionally being absent. And I notice on my reflections that that has happened to me on regular occasions. There are times I've been in the room with my family, with my kids, with my wife, and I'm there. I'm physically sitting there. But my head is engaged in work activities, in needs, in things I'm trying to wrestle through in my head. And I'm physically present, but I'm emotionally absent. Absence is powerful. And here, we read this young woman talk about the power of absence. She says, I will search for the one I love. So I searched everywhere, but listen to these words. Because can't we read this like I introduced, that it's a love story between God, the groom, and you as the bride. But look at these words. So I searched everywhere, but did not find him. God, omnipresent one. The one who's promised to never leave us or forsake us. What do you mean? I could not find him. And as you look into this further, you see that there are numerous occasions in the Bible where it seems God is declared absent. Psalm 10 verse 1 says these words, O Lord, why do you stand so far away? Why do you hide when I'm in trouble? Hide, God, hide in. We all know the story of Job. Job 13, 
Job cries out and says, why do you hide your face? And consider me like your enemy. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 8 says, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the descendants of Jacob. I will put my trust in him. Psalm 30 verse 7 says, Lord, when you favored me, you made my royal mountain stand firm. But when you hid your face, I was dismayed. I remember a really challenging time in our lives when we had moved to another part of the country to pastor a church. And the house that we bought in the place we previously lived, we couldn't sell. We were trapped in a place of negative equity, couldn't sell this place, had it on the market for a few years. So in the end, we decided that we were going to try and rent that place out and rent somewhere where we'd moved to. Seemed to make a lot of sense. The only problem was the person that we rented our property out to turned out to be a drug dealer who refused to pay any rent. That meant that we had no income coming in with a mortgage to pay still on that home and rent to pay, which we couldn't afford in our new place. I remember during this time, neither remember it as well, and there was a man you want to provide and you want to deal with all of these things, and we go to a supermarket and we've got a trolley with a modest amount of shopping in there and it's all processed to the till, and that moment you come to pay, handed the card over, and it was declined. And the walk of shame from that place where everybody just sees that shopping just sitting there. At that time as well, it's not long after we just lost a baby. And it just felt, if I'm honest with you, like God was missing. God, where are you hiding? I can't see you. Maybe you've got your own stories. Times where it's felt like God's absent. And in those times of absence, it will be so easy for the enemy of your soul to convince you that it's because you're not loved. But it's obvious he loves you. So what's going on? I sensed as I was preparing this that some of those stories you reflect on in your life are the times when it felt like God was absent. That some of you have thrown the emotional towel in to your desire for the Lord. You're still present physically you still look like a thriving Christian, but the desire has died because you felt so abandoned and rejected. And I want to help you today. What's going on? Well, Job's friends go back to one of those scriptures I read. They assumed that the absence of God in Job's life must have been because Job had messed up. 
because there was sin. You and I know that there are things we can do in any relationship that grieve the other person. They cause detachment because we offend in some way. And the same can be true of our dynamics of our walk with God. And Job's friend said, you must have done something to offend God so severely that he has now hidden himself from you. It's not a bad place to start, actually, in our considerations, if we feel like God is absent. It's not a bad place to start and think, is there something that I have offended God with that I need to put right? So you're beautiful, you're lovely, and he makes us scarlet like white as snow. When we bounce down in repentance, he elevates us in glory. So he can heal and he can forgive, and it's not a bad question. And next week, we're going to be looking, going to go back a few verses, and we're going to look at some of what Song of Songs calls the little foxes that ruin the vine. Because there are scurrying little foxes that want to steal intimacy in our lives. And it's going to be quite frank next week. I'm going to look at some of the intimacy killers like pornography. And it's okay, don't be scared. Because though you were dark and vulnerable, it's obvious that you were loved. And I believe there's going to be light shining on darkness next week. And there's going to become release from some things that have been killing your intimacy for years. We can grieve our lover and prevent him from coming close, but that's not always the cause. Because it seems in this song, at this moment, that there is no reason that we are given as to anything the young woman has done which has caused God or her lover to go into hiding. In fact, there were a number of pastors, they're sometimes referred to as the Puritans in the 16th and 17th century, that observed something in their own life and they observed it in the lives of their congregation. Something that is exactly as we read here, where it feels like God goes missing. Missing in action. And they gave a name to this and have written books on it. It's called Spiritual Desertion where it just feels like the dark night of the soul. That period of time that just feels isolated and alone. And if you have experienced that, if you are experiencing that, I want you to know you are loved. It's obvious. But what is going on? Why would God go missing? Well, there are two things. First of all, absence makes us realize what we've got. When we first moved to Exeter, it seemed to take, I think it was about six months before we managed to get our home connected up to the internet. During those six months, we realized how much we took the internet for granted. It felt like it's almost a human right today, like we have drinking water. It felt like we were doing all of our recipes, we would get online, our kids' homework was done online, news was devoured online, and it just felt not having it made us realize just how 
helpful that was in our life. And there are times when we assume so much of God and the absence reminds us of what we have. But there's a second reason. Absence tests our desire and our love. We often make bold claims in our songs, don't we? We think of words like, I'm desperate for you. Or we sing that psalm of, as the deer pants for streams of living water, so my soul longs for you. Maybe we sing that old hymn that says, I surrender all. And the seeming absence of the Lord can provide us with a measuring stick at that time against the sincerity of those words and those songs that we sing. That period of time I mentioned, doing the walk of shame, not being able to pay our bills, not having the money to evict this person through the legal process, that time of loss. We had rescued a piano from someone's skip with their permission and renovated it a little bit. And this piano sat in our dining room. And at that time when it was like, God, where are you? Where are you? I'd get up early in the morning and I sat at the piano and I wrote songs to the Lord. They were like my psalms. It was me looking for the lover of my soul. It was me chasing after him. I had no idea that those songs we would eventually produce into an album sometime later. Some of those songs get sung around the world in different churches now. I know that because last year I had 46 pence worth of royalties. And they only pay it out when you get four pound or more. And it's just hovering around three pounds 60 right now. So another, another few months and I might get my four quid. But it was, it was me saying, I don't know where you are, but I'm going to find you. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul's going to long after you. I'm going to chase after you. I'm not going to throw the towel in. I'm not going to say, well, clearly God doesn't think as much of me as he does other people. They all seem to be in blessing. And the difficulty about church fellowship is that sometimes you can be sitting next to someone who's in a season of blessing. And you're like, where's God? I can't sense him. I can't feel him. Particularly in an environment like this where, you know, we're playing all these, God, you are good and your mercy endureth forever. Where are you, God? And the person next to you is dancing and raving and shouting and screaming. And inside, you just feel so empty. And I sense some of you have thrown the towel in. And it's time to take that towel back out of the ring. Yes. And it's time to have that realization that the Lord hides himself, not because he doesn't love you, 
but because he's trying to draw deeper desire out of our lives. If you stop searching for the one whose eyes burn with passion for you, it's time to start searching again. Let's look at the next few verses before we close. Verse 3 says, The watchman stopped me as I'm going around trying to find my lover, and they asked, and I asked them, Have you seen the one I love? Do you know it's good to ask other people if you feel God is remote, if you feel He is hidden, it's good to ask other people to help. Sometimes we find something of fresh of the Lord from other people. We've been trying to locate some equipment here in the building for the last few weeks that we just can't find where it's been stored. And I've looked around and we've got cubby holes everywhere here. I've looked around and some of the team we've looked around and we've asked people, hey, do you know where this is? We do that when we're keen to find something. And if you've lost the Lord... It's time to start asking people to help. If you sense God is absent from you, then get all the help you can. But don't send others out to be your search party. You know, sometimes people say, Mark, will you pray for me so that all of this will get resolved? So all my troubles will go away. Well, I'll pray for you. But you're going to have to search. Too many people expect other people to do it for them. And that's not the point. It's your desire the Lord's bringing out. It's your passion he's stirring. And look at verse 4. Then scarcely had I left them when I found my love. Where did you come from? Have you ever had those moments? Suddenly you wake up, it's like a new day. The weeping may last for a night. Joy comes in the morning and the sun rises. And so, there you are. Where have you been? She doesn't say, where have you been? Look what happens. When I found my love, I caught him and I held him tightly. Then I brought him to my mother's house. There he was. We're not giving any reason, but he's there. He's passionate, he's loving, and his eyes are longing for this young woman. The lover of your souls may need to withdraw to remind your souls how much you want him. And when we find him, we should hold him tightly. Absence is powerful. But of course, he never really is absent. Hidden is probably a better description. He knows where you are. He knows the deepest longing of your hearts. And he is preparing you for intimacy. Maybe the band could join me on the stage. And let me read to you one final verse. It's found in the letter that James wrote in the New Testament, chapter 4. And it says this. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Why don't we stand together? Maybe 
You're saying, God, where are you? It's an invitation to go deeper with him. It's not a litmus test of his passion for you. That's already not in doubt. But it's an invitation of the Spirit to go deeper. And I want to encourage us. I know not everybody here might be familiar with this, but I'm going to encourage us. If you say, Lord, I want to hold you tightly, just to lift your hands to heaven, just stand in his presence and say, Lord, would you, would you help me to desire you with everything? To love you with all my heart, all my soul. Come and heal our orphan spirits, oh God. Come and heal our sense of abandonment. Resurrect our desires and our dreams for you. Resurrect that discontent emotion where instead of pressing through and going deeper, we've withdrawn and retreated. And something died in us when that happened. And we ask, oh God, that you will resurrect it. In Jesus' name. Jesus, lover of our souls. Jesus, I will never let you go. You've taken me from the miry clay. You've established me upon a rock. And now I know. We love you, Jesus. Because you first loved us.